Well, today I begin a short series, a series I'm calling Unzipping the Veil of Legalism. Legalism does not negate our eternal life. However, legalism is the static. How many of you grew up with a television that once in a while just gave you a bunch of static? You had to keep moving the little rabbit ears around. You had to put tinfoil over them. Come on, you've been there, right? You young people don't understand what I'm talking about, do you? Legalism is the interference that gets between us and abundant life. I'm talking about the Zoe kind of life, the kind of life that God has called us to live and purpose for us to live and helps us to live and desires for us to live right here, right now. We've got to quit thinking so much about in the by and by. We've got to quit thinking so much about one day. We've got to quit thinking so much about someday in heaven and think about this is where we live today. And God has called you and us and all of us to live this Zoe kind of life. It's the God kind of life. I'm not struggling in my day-to-day life to live right now. In fact, I've said to the Lord, I'm in no hurry for heaven. I honestly believe if Jesus opened up the heavens right now and said, Mark, would you like to come here today? I honestly believe I'd say, Jesus, I want to stay here. I want to stay here because there are other people that need to be set free. As I said in the former series, I see the body of Christ where to be like medics for the soul, extricating people from the carnage, from the wreckage of old covenant mindsets and mentalities. So let me see if I can make what I said a little more plain. After a person comes to Christ, if you choose to live a legalistic lifestyle, it will not interfere with your salvation. Why? My answer has not changed. Because our salvation is a finished work. Unfortunately, legalism does not check itself at the door. It shows up all over the place. It shows up in our words. It shows up in our thoughts. It shows up in our actions. It just has a way of sprouting as we go. Legalism will continue to interfere with people's minds. It will perpetually interfere with their emotions. It will interfere with their relationship with other people. Legalism will interfere with a person's peace. It will interfere with a person's joy. And it will even interfere with a person's children. Why? Because they will be the ones watching you model Christianity. And if we model legalism, then the chances are that our children will grow up to be legalistic. Does that make sense? I mean, they take on you. As much as my two boys, Tyler and Tanner, thought all the stuff I was doing was corny as they were in their teenage years, you know what? I see them talking (laughs) the same as I do, having similar interests. When they laughed at me and said, Dad, that's corny. Dad, don't say that in front of my friends. Dad, 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 Dad. 
they're doing the same thing. Why? Because it was modeled before them, right? When a child is born, it doesn't matter what nationality, what ethnic that child is, that child is not pre-programmed with a certain dialect or a certain language. Would you agree with that? You can't tell one baby's cry from another, right? That baby could be totally Asian, and it would sound just like a Caucasian baby. There's no difference. And so we are taught things as we go in life. You know, I lived in the, the South when I was very young, Virginia, West Virginia, Tennessee. And when I was there, I was very Southern. Because I was born in the North here, my accent had already developed. But then when I would go to live in the South, I would begin to take on the accent of the people. And if you put me in Virginia for about two months, boy, I'll tell you, boy, I'd just be so Southern. I could gravitate to that very, very easily. I could go back to that very, very easily. We are not pre-programmed with a certain language. We are not pre-programmed with a certain accent or dialect. And unless one totally abandons the performing to please God mentality, they will never know what true abundant life is. How do I know? Because I know me. The only person that knows me better than me is not Valerie, it's God. God knows me the best. I know me the second best. Valerie probably knows me the third best, right? Their emotions will be like a yo-yo. Up one moment, down the next. Walking the dog, skinning the cat, and going into the sleeper mode. These are all tricks, by the way, from the yo-yo. I mean, you're just all over the place, and you're performing all these tricks. You're performing all these things in order to please God. And most of it, I believe, is unintentionally. You just are programmed that way. From a child, you begin to develop what you hear the preachers preach, what you hear your teachers teach, what you see and hear your mama and papa do. You begin to take that kind of stuff on. And so what also happens is the view and opinion that you have of yourself, it changes. It changes like the weather. Our view and opinion, not only of ourselves, but of other people, and also of God becomes. We see God one day, is he's for me. You know, the old flower thing, he loves me, he loves me not. And so many Christians, they say, what, what's your problem? What are you talking about, Mark? I'm already living the abundant life. Let me ask you a question. What if there was more? More peace? <laughs> more joy? More life? More love? More laughter? What if there was more rest? What if there was more grace that you haven't accessed yet? Performing to please the Father is not the agent that releases this from the Father. The scriptures tell us that we already have everything that pertains to life and godliness. We already have it. It's already on the inside of us, friends. Friends, the Father is already pleased with us. If that revelation could stick to your heart, that revelation alone releases believers from the bondage of legalism. 
I want you to see how Merriam-Webster defines legalism in their dictionary. Strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law. Not a law, but the law. Or to a religious or moral code. I think Webster's nailed it, to be honest with you. Now, as you stare at that definition on the PowerPoint, do you notice that Merriam-Webster's definition of legalism is void of relationship? Do you see that? I don't see anything in there about relationship. It's rules, it's code, and it's strict adherence, but no relationship. Now, if you were to work for the bomb squad, <laughs> then I think it would behoove you to follow Merriam-Webster's playbook. That is, work by a strict, literal code and work with excessive conformity. This is no place, no time to play around. But believers are not the bomb squad. We are sons and daughters of the king. You see, prior to Christ, the bomb had already detonated in our lives, and it made a real mess of us, didn't it? But Jesus came along with a perfect salvation. Not to put our broken pieces back together, but to recreate us afresh. You are not a Humpty Dumpty, friends. You were not put back together with Gorilla Glue. I'm telling you, you are a son, you are a daughter of the Most High King. You have been recreated in Christ. That's why the scripture will say, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And when he recreated us anew, guess what he did? He made us bombproof. He made us fireproof. We can never be touched by the enemy ever again. See, that is one truth that the body of Christ has not awakened to. They always blame so much on the devil. They always blame so much on the enemy. But this is not what the scriptures tell us. Now, I want you to look at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 18. It says, we know that whoever is born of God does not sin. That means they do not habitually sin. They do not practice sin. They do not make it a habit of sinning. They do not sin flippantly. Why? Because we're not compatible with sin. We're incongruent with that nature. And so it bugs us. If sinning doesn't bug you, then there's a problem, friends. But the truth of the matter is, anybody that is born of God does not like sin. They hate it. They despise it. Even when they fall into it, even when they do it, they go, oh, that wasn't me. Oh, God. I mean, they, the language can probably vary from person to person. If I blow it in some way, shape, or form, I just say, Daddy, that was not me. That's the residue from old programming that's left over that has not worked its way out yet. That's not who I really am at the core. At the core, I'm like Christ. Christ is like me. We are one together. And so it says, we know that whomever is born of God does not sin. The one 
Notice the capital O, right? The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the wicked one cannot touch him. Please, please. I mean, put that in the vice grip of your heart and don't let go of it. The wicked one cannot touch him. Listen, if Satan could just touch us anytime he feels like it and do anything he wants to us, there wouldn't be a church here. There'd be none of us here today. We'd all be gone. But he can't touch us. So the adversity we face in life sometimes comes at the hands of friends and enemies and family, whatever it may be. Sometimes it comes because you made a poor decision, whatever it may be. Quit blaming it on the devil. He's a defeated foe. And that scripture says he cannot touch you. He cannot touch you. Does it say he might not touch you? No, it doesn't. It's emphatic here. It says he cannot. He cannot touch you. Why can't the wicked one touch us? I'll tell you why. Very simple, because we no longer belong to him. We no longer belong to him. We are no longer his children. We belong to God. God is our father. And we are kept safe, the scripture says, through the one. (laughs) Not two, not three, not four. One. Not you. Not your neighbor. We're kept safe by the one. Who's that one talking about? Jesus, right? We are kept safe by the one who was born of God, namely Jesus Christ. Today, I want to minister for a few minutes through the first message of this series, through a message I'm calling Perfect Throughly Furnish. And no, that is not a typo. You'll find out what I'm talking about in a little bit here. Perfect! Truly furnished. And what I want us to see through the message today is this. Legalism is the result of several things. One, no context or improper context. Legalism comes because we have not rightly divided the covenants. We have not rightly divided the word of truth. And legalism comes because we don't understand God's heart. Legalism comes because simply erroneous doctrine, erroneous indoctrination was put into us as a growing child, and we just developed into it. But I also want us to see how grace and truth can set people free from legalism. Amen? (laughs) It's true. I find it somewhat ironic that this series would begin on the anniversary date of one of the most unforgettable periorbital hematoma days that our country has ever experienced. Does anybody know what a periorbital hematoma is? Raise your hand. That's what I thought. (laughs) In case you're wondering what one of those is, it is the fancy language found in our medical journals for a black eye. That's all. I'm talking about the black eye that was given to America on September 11th of 2001. The black eye that caused dreadful destruction and untold grief and the needless loss of thousands of lives. 
I'm talking about the black eye that brought about sheer panic upon the heart of the nation. I'll bet you every single one of you can remember exactly where you were at when you heard that news. I've never met anybody that's forgotten that yet. I was a manager at Ace Hardware. It was a Tuesday morning when all of a sudden the news broke. And I remember the other manager of that store saying, Mark, can you take us all in the back room and can you just pray? And I said, it'd be my pleasure to do that. And I prayed and wept with tears as I just released God's power and God's provision upon this world. And who were the ones that were responsible for the attack on American soil? Friends, it came at the hands of men that had been indoctrinated and radicalized with viewpoints of hatred and disdain for anyone that was unlike them. And they did it all in the name of religion. Now I want to ask you a question. How did the 911 hijackers become so corrupt with such an ideology? Were they born that way? No. Their corruption and deception came through their teachings. And that is the point of this series. Wherever the mind goes, the man will follow. If the men who committed these egregious acts of violence had been placed into my family when they were born, 911 would have never happened because they would have not been indoctrinated with such a hateful and Christless doctrine. And my children were taught to love. My children were taught to honor. And they were taught to respect not only our home, but other people's homes and other people's yards and other people's lives. My children discovered Jesus and were introduced to Jesus at very, very young ages. Each of them came to me and said, Daddy, I want to know Jesus. It wasn't like I hogtied them, pinned them on the floor, tried to pour it down their throat. No, they came to me, and I could tell it was genuine. I could sense in my spirit. I could see the trembling in my little guys as each of them at different times, of course, came to me and said, Daddy, I want to know Jesus for myself. The actions of the 911 terrorists were merely the fruit of them that had been veiled in legalism from a child. That's all. Babies that were born into darkness far worse than that of Egyptian darkness. Babies that never knew the love of God, never knew the name of Christ. When I think about today, some of the things that contribute to our children's waywardness, I think about social media because there's so much dishonor and disregard and disrespect. I think about the television. I'm almost appalled by what I see sometimes on television. I go, really? We just never got away with anything like that as a child. The world is caught up in video games and not just Pong, you know, Coleco. No, nothing like that, which we were fascinated with when it first came out. A little ball making his way up and clicking out a few tiles. No, it's violent, violent video games today and violent music as well. 
And so that's what is influencing the minds of our children for sure. But I believe that there are three enemies that fly under the radar. They're undercover in a sense. We don't give much thought to them, but they stem from, listen to me carefully, godless homes, fatherless homes, and religious homes. When we fix all of that, we can defund the police, but not until. Not until. Fortunately, the body of Christ is not radicalized in the sense that it wants to kill everyone that disagrees with them. I have people that disagree with me all the time. Killing them is the farthest thing from my mind. I want to love them. I want them to see what I see. I want them to see the grace I see. I want them to see Jesus and all of his loveliness and his finished work. And it takes time. How many of you know that? So we don't just kill everyone we disagree with. On the other hand, silencing ourselves emotionally and distancing ourselves physically from people that we just simply don't agree with is a painfully slow death of a relationship. I've seen this happen in many families. I've seen this happen in families of God. I've seen this happen in my own family. It's a painful thing to watch. So I want to ask you a question. Why does this happen? Why is there so much legalism? Why is the body of Christ so concerned about their salvation becoming undone? And as I was asking the Father that question, why is the body of Christ so concerned about their salvation becoming undone? I heard the Holy Spirit whisper back these words. He said, did you know that it's impossible to cook a steak well done and then make it raw again? Friends, hear the words of the Father. Well done! This is what he's saying. There's no way to go back. He's not just applauding every little thing we do, although I think we make him smile and it blesses his heart. He's saying, well done. He speaks that over us. When we find ourselves in conflict and mental anguish, primarily because so many of us just go around with Believe in everything we hear. We swallow hook, line, and sinker, as the old saying goes. And we find ourselves in a spiritual current. How many of you know, if you ever swam in a river, you get in a current, and the river just takes you where it wants to take you? you got to fight against the current, don't you? You do. I've swam in the rivers a lot when I was a young kid. And the reason we find ourselves in the situation that we're in with all this legalism is people find themselves in a current and they hear things, and they never question what they're hearing. They just take it all in, and they just make it doctrine. Well, the pastor has to know. I encourage you, you take all the time in the world, if you want to, to question what I preach here. I encourage you to go look up the scriptures, put them in context, meditate upon them, just do all of that. And then, if you want to keep talking about it, let's talk about it. But I'm very, very careful to say, Daddy, what is your heart? I want to be accurate here. 
I don't want to put people under condemnation. I definitely don't want to put them under legalism. We've been taught that we can be made unclean by the things we do, the places we go, and the people that we hang around with. Guess what we do? We modify our behavior, we avoid the ungodly, and we never get out and about and live the Zoe kind of life, the God kind of life. None of those attitudes are daddy's heart. We have learned doctrine in the church, and we're very good at learning doctrine, but we flag a little bit in the sense of learning to hear the Holy Spirit's voice. And many people have never really heard the rhythm of Daddy's heart. Friends, may I remind us that Jesus selected 12 ordinary men to be his disciples. You say, Mark, were these men referred to Jesus by the high priest? <laughs> Not at all. No. Were these the best of the best, the cream of the crop? Not by far. Wasn't Jesus concerned about contamination? Are you kidding me? Wasn't Jesus nervous about what his father might think about these men? Come on. How many of you felt that way when you wanted to bring home a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a fiance or whatever it may be to introduce them to your parents? Were you concerned what they might think? Sure you were. And that's why you probably hid them for a little while. And when you couldn't hide them anymore, you said, oh, by the way, mama, this, this is my boyfriend. Something like that. Come on. It's true. So was Jesus nervous about what his father might think about these men? That is so silly. Friends, his father is the one who led them to his son. Jesus wasn't the one arranging everything. The scriptures say there was nothing even about him that was lovely enough to you would look upon him and go, you got to be the guy I'm going to follow. He was common. He was ordinary looking. But it was what was on the inside that counted, not the outside. You see, it was Jesus who changed his disciples. His disciples didn't change him. It was Jesus who made his disciples clean. His disciples did not make him dirty. And they had no way, no ability to give Jesus a spiritual periorbital hematoma. Having grown up in a legalistic church, I feel like I'm going to pull this into a different gear now. We've been in a gear for a while, right? But having grown up in a legalistic church, I can tell you firsthand, not textbook, not hearsay. I can tell you firsthand, I was there. I can tell you firsthand that I have seen believers disfellowship from the church because they smoked cigarettes or because they had an occasional alcoholic beverage. Do you want to know what scripture the church based their excommunication upon? They based it upon the scripture. Come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing 
and I will receive you. And that was written in the very tracks that we put in people's hands. And I didn't even realize that was wrong at the time. It seemed right. Because remember, I grew up in that from a child. It seemed right. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, we're going to find out where they get this scripture from. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? Now let me pause here for a second because all of those other examples was to lead you to this one right here. He's asking the question, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Here's where it comes from now. Therefore, what does the word therefore mean? It means for those reasons, for that reason. Therefore, I like to say is the rear view mirror because it reminds you of where you've just come from in this text right here. See, if you just pull a text out of nowhere, if you just pull something out of it just for face value, it's left to your own interpretation, but we're staying in context here. So he said, therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, over the years, I have heard ministers teach these scriptures, of course, and they've taught them from many angles, right? One minister will put the emphasis on a believer not marrying an unbeliever. And I think that's wisdom, but that's not where we're going with these scriptures. But I've heard it taught that way. This is what it means. I've heard another minister say, well, this means that a believer should not go into business with an unbeliever because there's going to be decision-making time and because you have two different value systems. You're either going to be pulled to keep him happy at times and make wrong decisions or even sinful decisions. And so I understand what they're saying here, but that's not the essence of these scriptures. And I think it is wisdom. If you're going to go into business and you need a partner, find a believer. Find someone who loves God with all of their heart. I do believe that. The essence of these scriptures, though, is not to avoid or refrain from touching unbelievers, but rather to avoid their practices of temple idol worship. You want to know why we avoid that? Because we are the temple of the living God. Temples are not brick and mortar. We are the temple of the living God. So he's basically saying in there, don't be drawn over into that camp because they have a different temple that they worship at. You're going to find yourself incongruent, incompatible with them. 
I've told this story before, but it just came back to my attention. A dear lady who's went on to be with the Lord, one of my best friends from our former church, she told me, and her husband was a believer too, she told me she would go around the house and she would be doing dishes, you know, picking up things, just walking through. And she was constantly having a conversation with the Lord. That's exactly what I do. I'm walking through my living room. I can just say, Jesus, I love you. I, I get up in the morning. I just say, hi, daddy. I start listening for his voice. I start just communicating with him. And she said she would walk through the home and whatnot. And she would always be going, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. And finally, her husband couldn't stand it one day. And he said, would you stop that? She didn't even know what he meant. She said, stop what? Always saying, I love you, Jesus. Friends, let me ask you a question. If it's that tough sometimes married to a believer, can you imagine what it would look like being married to an unbeliever? What do you got to talk about? How good the movie was that you just went and seen? How long is that going to last? How good your steak dinner was tonight? How long is that going to last? What the kids are doing tomorrow? No. Valerie and I spend time after time and moment after moment talking about God and the goodness of God and the love of God and the grace of God. And when the Apostle Paul penned these words right here, he was appealing to people to forsake idolatry and all the unclean things related to temple worship. That's it, friends. He was beseeching his listeners to come to the Father. Come to Daddy. Come to Papa. Come to God. Beseeching his listeners, come to the Father so that they could become Sons and daughters. Yet the church has built these scriptures into a doctrine that somehow justifies themselves when disfellowshipping struggling converts. I told you, I saw this growing up. And those people love God with all their heart. I personally knew a man, not knew of, but knew him. He loved God with all of his heart. He actually was very involved in youth ministry and he was studying to become a pastor. He really felt the calling on his life to be a pastor. He wrote in his high school senior yearbook that he was going to spend the summer evangelizing and telling people about the love of God. But the leadership of his church shunned and shamed him for a smoking habit. He left that church hurt. And guess what he did? He crawled into a bottle, a bottle of booze that would, over the years, claim his marriage, and it would claim his business, and ultimately it would claim his life, friends. How do I know all this? Because I knew him personally, and because I preached his funeral. And the last time I saw that man alive, his son had invited him to come to the church that we were a part of at the time. And I could tell he was hurting. I could tell that the worship ministered to him. I was on the other end, but I came around to the end that he was on, and I put my arm around him, and I pulled him so closely to me, and I said, John, 
the father told me to tell you he really loves you. He really loves you and you're on his mind. And I watched a man stand there stiff as a board, but yet I could see in the emotions. I could see what had been trapped in him forever, for decades, begin to melt because of the love of God. Where's my friend right now? Where did he go? Well, as I said earlier, a man's lifestyle has no ability to undo well done. Come on. It has no ability to undo well done. Why? Because he has already been made perfect, truly furnished at all good works. Friends, we are not clean because we have refrained from touching unclean things. Okay? I have shaken the hands and hugged the necks of thousands of sinners, and not a single one of them made me unclean. I've had unbelievers in my home for a meal, yet not a single one of them ever disgraced or contaminated my home. Isn't that beautiful? Over the years, I have received a periorbital hematoma, a black eye, from believers as well as unbelievers alike, yet I'm still standing. How? Why? Because my Father has made me perfect, truly furnished. Had I been under legalism for the last 13 years, I would have missed many countless opportunities to impact and influence people's lives for Christ. And this church would have never been planted. People can overlook a lot of things about a man of grace, a woman of grace, but you cannot overlook seeing what grace, the finished work of Christ, is doing in them and through them. Is that true? It is true. So what should the leadership of that church have done instead of disfellowshipping my friend? They should have understood, well done! They should have understood that well done is based upon position, not performance. It's based upon my position in Christ, not my performance in Christ. They should have taught him that believers are empowered. Hear that word, empowered by grace. Not through legalism. We are empowered through grace, never through legalism. We see that truth in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. You guys have heard me preach these scriptures. I love them. How many of you eat the same old stuff over and over when you go to the grocery store? Come on. You buy the same food over and over, don't you? Well, you should never get tired of the scriptures over and over again either, do we? Because they're so liberating. In Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we find these words. The Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing 
of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own. Now look at the last words, eager to do what is good. Do you see what the motivation is? I'm eager to do what's good. Why? Because grace is what is empowering me. Not because legalistically I have to. I've been there. I've done it for those reasons. But it's so much more supernatural, so much easier, so much more restful when I just fall into that awareness and that reminder that look how those scriptures start. It says, for the grace of God. What does the grace of God do? Well, keep reading. It says, it says, it. What is it? It's the grace. It should have just said, grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright lives, godly lives in this present age. Friends, it is grace that empowers us to live like this. Is that simple? It's grace that empowers us. So I got a question for you. Who or what did these scriptures tell us was the teacher? The teacher that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Who's the teacher? It says there, for the grace of God, not your own grace, it's the grace of God that teaches us to live this way. It's not legalism. It's not law. And it's not the bomb squad, friends. It's grace that teaches us to live this way. These scriptures tell us that grace is our teacher. And how does grace teach us? Grace reminds us that we are perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. This is the message that should have been declared over my friend. This is the message that should be declared over us when we're hatched, matched, and dispatched. When we are born again, that's hatched. When we are married to Christ, that's matched. When we tie with him in baptism, that's dispatched. In the church that I grew up in, members were strongly advised not to participate in going to the theater. We couldn't go to the roller rink because of the music that was being played. And we were instructed to avoid all games that use dice. Why? Because it resembled Las Vegas too much. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that just silly? Figured we'd end up with a gambling addiction from playing Monopoly. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Friends, these churches exist today. I'm not throwing my brothers and sisters under the bus. I don't like doing that. But look, if you're going to get free, you got to bring out some of this stuff, right? Now, if I had a friend walk up to me and tell me, Mark, that his church was this way and I had no familiarity with it, I'd just say, no, no, you've got to be taking something out of context here. But I grew up in it, I know. We had spinners. My grandmother always made spinners. You had to click a spinner, even play Monopoly. So silly. People were rebuked and shunned because they didn't tithe or because of tattoos or the cutting of hair. There were believers that were not allowed to take communion because the leadership of the church didn't agree with that congregant's lifestyle. 
Friends, I grew up in a church where the wearing of jewelry, even something as simple as a wedding band, was strictly prohibited. Earrings, necklaces, watches, all the same, all considered jewelry, therefore strictly prohibited. The Merriam-Webster Dictionary defined legalism just like what I'm talking about right now, strict, literal, or excessive conformity to the law or to a religious or moral code. Now, what scripture did my church use as the basis for the prohibition of jewelry? They based that on 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3. Let's take a look at the scripture. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. This is the scripture that was used. Anybody ever seen this before? Yeah. If there's no context, which I've given you no context, I've just pulled one scripture out, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, right? Without context, we have to take what we're seeing just for face value. And I would be the first one to agree with you that that scripture does come across as a command. But let's bring in context by adding what was said just before that scripture and what was said immediately following that scripture because that's what context does, right? Now let's take a look at it in 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's bring in verses 1 through 6. And I want to give it to you in the message paraphrase. The same goes for you, wives. Be good wives to your husbands, responsive to their needs. There are husbands who, indifferent as they are to any words about God. In other words, what he's saying is, ladies, you're going to get married to a guy sometime that could care nothing about God. They're just indifferent. They don't care anything about spirituality. And this is what he's talking about. He says, there are going to be husbands who are indifferent about the words of God. He basically said, by watching you, they will be captivated by your life of holy beauty. What matters is not your outer appearance, okay? You see, we're building up to this, feel the crescendo. What matters is not your outer appearance, the styling of your hair, here it comes, the jewelry you wear, that doesn't matter, the cut of your clothes, but what really matters is your inner disposition. Cultivate inner beauty, the gentle, gracious kind that God delights in. The holy women of old were beautiful before God that way and were good loyal wives to their husbands. Sarah, for instance, taking care of Abraham, would address him as, my dear husband. And then he says, you will be true daughters of Sarah if you do the same, unanxious and unintimidated. Now, nothing about these scriptures prohibit the wearing of jewelry, the styling of your hair, the type of clothes you wear, Yet the church I grew up in taught it as sin. You could be sinning just by what you were wearing. The Apostle Peter was simply telling his audience that, here it is, that one's value, one's identity more so, one's value, one's identity shouldn't come from six-inch stilettos. It shouldn't come from mink coats. 
It shouldn't come from stylish haircuts or exquisite jewelry, anything you wear or don't wear, any place you go or you don't go, anything you do or you don't do. He said, your value, your identity should not come from that. But that gentle and quiet and beautiful disposition on the inside of you, value and identity should not come from the outside in, but rather spring forth from an inner beauty, an inner position. And guess what that inner disposition will do? It will do all those things. It will decorate you. It will decorate you with God's goodness and God's love and God's holiness and God's graces. It's almost as though as it adorns you with jewels. It's like it takes you to a salon for the day, like a shopping spree at Neiman Marcus clothing store. Have at it. This is what grace does when it's working on the inside of us. Makes us beautiful so that when we open our mouths, I'm telling you, pure grace pours forth. The church I grew up in took a legalistic approach. They just prohibited jewelry. They just said it's wrong. They looked down on you if you were a man with long hair or a woman with short hair. You know what my mother did? I remember this. My mother, because of legalism, left that denomination and took her children with her. We went from the frying pan into the fire and ended up in a denomination that really wasn't much better. You know what the only difference was? You could wear a wedding band at the next church and you could be married more than one time. Not at the same time, but more than one time. Now, in all fairness, again, I can tell you that many of these denominations have seen their error of their foolish interpretations of Scripture and have since reversed their positions on many of their core beliefs, some of the ones I just talked about. However, they are still full of mixture, mixing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. You know, the medium rare one day and then the well done the next. It's a cycle that never ends until one realizes that they have been made perfect, truly furnished. I want to ask you a question. Now, we're going to really get out there on the fringe, okay? Because I got to deal with some stuff here. What about the denominations that forbid a woman to wear pants? Because they still uphold Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 5. I want you to look at the scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. There are denominations that put their women in dresses and dresses alone. They are not allowed to wear pants even if they're women's pants. They teach that a woman is more holy when dressed in a dress, more holy with no makeup, more holy with no jewelry, more holy with uncut hair, etc. You can just keep filling in the blanks. They have overlooked the essence of the Apostle Peter's message when he wrote that beauty comes from your inner disposition and not your plain Jane appearance. Peter wrote, cultivate inner beauty. 
How do you do that? Cultivate means to plow over with manure. I mean, how do you cultivate something, friends? That means you have to bring in something. You have to turn it over. Cultivate soil as you, you turn it over. You cultivate it. Take care of it. You can't just throw seeds all over the ground if you're not plowing the ground first and taking care of the ground. And so sometimes we have to go back. We have to go back to the basics. And that's where my journey began 13 years ago when I said, Father, I've walked around your heart for an awful long time. I've been really religious. I'm really good at it, Father. I'm really good at being religious. There ain't a person in the world that will say that Mark is not religious. They, they see that part. And I had the best intentions, friends. I really did. I meant the best for you. I'd help you any way I could. But I'm telling you, I had walked around the finished work. I had walked around His grace. And Peter wrote, cultivate inner beauty. He says, the gentle, gracious kind that God delights in. Friends, I can't speak for you. But if I could speak for you, I would say the majority of women, with certainty, if they were going to be honest with you, would say, you know what? I like me better with a little makeup. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I like me better with a little bit of jewelry. Come on. Be honest now. I'm not getting anybody that doesn't wear it. That's up to you. But be honest. You do a before and after take. You ever watch any of those improvement shows, you know, the before and after stuff? The transformations can be quite mind-blowing, to be honest with you. I watched one one time, and I said, that's the same woman? I couldn't believe it. <laughs> in ancient civilization, I mean, back in the early Old Testament days, right? The men and women's robes were almost identical. So what was Moses getting at in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, when he said, don't wear each other's clothes? Some will tell us that he was referring to the undergarments because the robe looked the same. In fact, from a distance, you may not even know if that's a man or a woman walking, to be honest with you, if they had their back towards you. If they turned around, all the men pretty much wore beards. You know, they didn't have the big razors where you could shave every single day. They just grew beards. It was just part of their custom. And so some will say maybe it was the undergarments. That's plausible, that's possible, but not comprehensive. Moses was talking about a common practice among the Eastern women. They would dress themselves in the same military attire that the men would wear when going to war because they would actually go to war at times themselves. And he was saying basically that a man is not to strap the apron around himself so as to fulfill the woman's role in the kitchen. In other words, men were to remain men and women were to remain women. We have an epidemic of stolen identity because the church keeps taking us to the kitchen to wash the outside of the cup. Friends, we are already clean. The putting on of the opposite sex's clothing is merely a type and shadow of mixture. And so it is with the putting on of the Old and New Covenant, the Old and New Garments, if you will. It is nothing more than mixture. The apron and the sword and the worship of Christ without the forsaking of idolatry. 
You don't need two temples, friends. You are the temple. I'm going to ask you a question. Did the people that enforced all of these periorbital hematomas love God, these black eyes? Sure they did. They love God with all their heart. They'd do anything for you. They'd lay their life down for you. And they thought it was their responsibility to modify everyone's behavior. How do I know that? Because I did it. It was modeled and I did it. I can't tell you how many friends I lost over the years back in the days because I wanted to modify their behavior because I thought it might disqualify them for heaven someday. They thought it was their responsibility to modify everyone's behavior so that they would be able to retain their salvation. Did you know that the term backslider or backsliding was constantly preached in the Christian church that I grew up in? It is only used 13 times in the entire Bible, and every single time it's used is the Old Covenant. And it speaks of Israel and her idolatry, her always turning away from God. That's all it talks about, friends. You do not see this word used in the New Testament. Yet I heard that preached over and over and over again. And I can still hear the cadence of some of those old Pentecostal preachers. And God says you're backslidden and you need to come back to him. Come on, you've been there. Have you ever heard that? You need to come back to him. We've got an altar right here. Come, come from the back. Get on your knees. You're backslidden. Come to God. I heard that over and over again. Always scared the stuff that was out of me. I wonder now if that was one of the things that kept me from coming to Christ. They painted this picture of a fearful God, the way they would scream and get so angry and, and snot and snort and everything flying off of them. I said, wait, what happened? You don't see that word in the New Testament because unlike Israel, God did something different for us. He made us perfect. Truly furnished unto all good works. The scriptures tell us in Ephesians 6 that we have an undying love for Christ. A love that will never die. That's what God has given us. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15-17, through 17, we find these words. The Apostle Paul is writing, He said, And that from a child... Thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. He said all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. That's to show you what's right. He said for reproof. That's to show you what's not right. He said for correction. That's to show you how Jesus made it right. And he said for instruction in righteousness. That is to show you how Jesus keeps it right. That the man of God may be perfect. Look at those words. Throwly, not thoroughly, throwly furnished unto all good works. I get very excited. I'm very passionate about these scriptures. I have a confession for you, though. I never noticed until putting together this message that the King James Version uses the word throughly rather than the word thoroughly. The way I came into this revelation was when I wrote this scripture into my sermon notes, I noticed my word processor didn't like that word. It didn't recognize that word, that word throughly. I thought perhaps 
there was a misspelling of the word, but that wasn't the case. My word processor didn't like that word because it didn't exist in its vocabulary. It had been replaced over the years, over the generations, with the word thoroughly. What's my point? My eyes, my ears, and even my own tongue had been so programmed that I didn't recognize the subtle difference in spelling and the profound difference in application. You say, Pastor Mark, is there a difference between thoroughly and throughly? I'll let you decide, but I believe there is. Imagine with me for a moment that you were to take on the task of painting every single wall in your home. When completed, you could marvel at your accomplishment. And you could say, I have thoroughly painted my home. But if you were to go on top of your house and get out your sawzall and cut a hole in the roof and then pour gallon after gallon after gallon after gallon after gallon of paint until your whole home was filled with paint, then you could use the same word that the apostle Paul used in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17 when he declared that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. What's the difference between these two home painting projects? One deals with just the surface. That's all it's dealing with. It's just the surface. I painted this church not too long ago. Notice I didn't paint the carpet. I painted the walls. One deals with the surface. The other deals with the saturation. You have saturated that home. That's why the scriptures tell us that the Lord does not look upon just the outward appearance, but he looks upon something much deeper. He looks upon the heart of man. The heart of man. One paint job was just topical. That's it. The other one is total saturation. And that's what the Apostle Paul was getting at when he said, you have been made perfect. That word throughly right there, its root word takes you all the way back to something much deeper than a topical meaning. More importantly, perfect, thoroughly furnished. Here's what it speaks of. It speaks of origin. See, you don't know where I got this paint from just by looking at the walls, do you? There's no way for you to know that. You could guess. Say, well, I don't know. You got it at Walmart. You got it at Menards. What? You'd be guessing, wouldn't you? No way to look at this, no. But see, the word that the Apostle Paul used speaks of the origin. Where did this come from? Where did this perfection come from? The words perfect, thoroughly furnished, come from the same root word that was used when Jesus was baptized, when you heard the words, and lo, a voice from heaven. From heaven. Therefore, when you look at those words that the Apostle Paul was speaking, he says, you are perfect from perfection. You didn't earn this. You did nothing to deserve this. The origin is perfection. You can't give away what you don't have. 
We have what Jesus has. We do. Perfect, truly furnished, translates as perfect from perfection and not perfect by perfect deeds. Perfection comes from our origin in Christ. It does not come at the hand of our own paintbrush or through our daily dying. There's another one. Our daily dying. How many of you heard that before? Friends, unzipping the veil of legalism releases the body of Christ from her impotent determination to die on a daily basis. Oh, I can't stand that anymore. Unzipping the veil of legalism releases the body of Christ from repainting the inner walls of her spirit man. The spirit man is perfect, truly furnished. He requires no touch-ups, okay? The Greek word behind our English word perfect, truly furnished, translates this way, fresh, as in new beginning, complete, perfect, and to finish out. That's what it means. Isn't that beautiful? That's what perfect means. You've been finished out. You're complete. You have a fresh start. You have a new beginning. When the Apostle Paul wrote the words, I die daily, you say, Pastor Mark, those are in the Bible. Don't tell me those aren't there. I've read those before. But I'll tell you what, when the Apostle Paul wrote those words, he didn't have legalism in mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31, what does he say? I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. He said, I die daily. Do you know what he was saying when he said, I die daily? One version of the Bible says, I face death daily. See, I used to think that dying daily was at an altar somewhere. I always thought dying daily was just overcoming my flesh. But the Apostle Paul said, I face death every day and I'm not deterred. I face it every day. Friends, dying daily means to consider ourselves already dead and not re-crucifying ourselves with rule-keeping. That ought to be on the marquee of every theater in the world. Let me say that again. I like that. Dying daily means to consider ourselves already dead and not re-crucifying ourselves with rule-keeping. To repeatedly crucify ourselves reinstitutes the veil of legalism. That's all it does. Believers are dead to sin. Believers are dead to the law. We are dead to the old nature and we are dead to the world. Friends, the veil has been torn through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Let me ask you a question. Why do so many denominations translate verses so differently? How do they interpret them so differently? Two reasons. Because they do not keep things in context, number one. And because they are not seen through the new covenant eyes of the finished work of grace. I was telling Valerie on the way here, I said when I worked at Ace Hardware, I said I would occasionally get over in the paint department and I would mix paint. If you wanted a light shade of paint like you see on the walls over here, you would start off with like a white base. When you peeled the top off that can, it looked like white paint. 
If you needed a dark color like that, it was more like a medium base. So when you opened it up, it didn't look white like the other one looked. And then you would look up the code to make the color they want. And you had this little apparatus that you would turn, lift it up to certain measures amounts. So you'd pump something and you'd squirt that down the can. How many of you know that a little bit of paint can change that entire gallon of paint when it goes into the shaker and just change it totally? And you put so little coloring in there. Well, if that's the only colorant that you use in life when you're reading the scriptures, then everything is going to have that tint to it. You've got to be willing to walk away from that and go, there's something I'm missing. This is not your heart, Father. And he will show that to you. He will lift that veil. That's how it happens, though. The new covenant is fresh. It's perfect. It's complete. And it's finished. My closing thoughts. On one occasion, Jesus was speaking to the religious Pharisees. You know, the ones that would tie up heavy loads, cumbersome burdens, and place them on people's shoulders, but wouldn't lift a finger to help them. Do you remember those people? And Jesus said these words, Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 26. Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, he says, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be made clean. What was Jesus saying to the Pharisees? What was he getting at? He was saying, you're strict! Your literal and excessive conformity to the law has detonated a bomb in your hearts. Your religious activities have destroyed the more important matters of the law, such as justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus was saying, you disfellowship, you disqualify my brothers and sisters from the church as you hide your secret sins behind your tithing and fasting and street corner prayers. You blind guides, you strain out a net but swallow a camel. Jesus was saying, you know, <laughs> you're really good at this washing the outside of the cup and dish thing, but you fail to pay attention. You fail to clean the inside of the cup and dish. My father does not look at the outward appearance, but upon the heart. He looks upon the inside of the cup. Jesus was saying, if you would just forsake the old covenant and the traditions of men and come, come, come to me. I would make you perfect, truly furnished unto all good works.
Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. Legalism doesn't undo a believer's salvation, but remember what I said? It generates static. It creates interference. It inhibits the believers from living the Zoe kind of life. Legalism is like a bomb detonating on the inside of us, scattering our mind, dismembering our emotions, and crippling our rest. Legalism is passed down from one generation to the next because we have people, we have little eyes that are watching us, little children. Legalism is rules and code and strict adherence to the law, but very little, if any, meaningful relationship. Friends, our periorbital, hematoma, black-eyed days have come to a close. The veil has been lifted. The evil one cannot touch us. That's what the Scriptures told us. Why? Because we are kept safe through the one who is born of God, namely Jesus Christ. There are a lot of voices competing for our attention. There are a lot of voices vying for our allegiance. But one thing is necessary. Hear the gentle voice of the Father as He whispers, Well done. Well done. You see, that which is well done cannot be undone. Our salvation is a finished work, a work by which the Father declares the inside of the cup has been made clean. We will never be dirty again. We cannot be contaminated again. We cannot be made unclean. And we can never experience disgrace. The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. You say, Pastor Mark, can you help me here for a second? Can you go through that abundant life thing with me one more time? What is the abundant life? I got the eternal life thing done. I got that part. What's the abundant life though? You say, I've searched my whole life. I've searched for years. And it always seems to be a few steps in front of me or just plain eludes me. I don't seem to have the joy. I don't seem to have the peace. I don't seem to have the rest that the scriptures speak of. Where, where, what is this abundant life? Why don't I have it? Friends, that's because religion handed you a yo-yo. Religion has muddied the waters and made it complicated. The abundant life is the life we already have in Christ. It's the life we experience at hatching. That's when we're born again. It's the life we experience when we're matched. That's when we're married to Christ. It's a life we experience at dispatching. That's when we're buried with Him in baptism. If you add anything to or subtract anything from these truths, then you'll need to add the bomb squad to your one-touch dial because you're going to be calling them all the time. Friends, unzipping the veil of legalism begins by letting go of the paintbrush. The spirit man is perfect. He requires no touch-ups. We don't die daily. We are never disqualified and we are never disfellowshipped in Christ. 
To believe that our pitiful works maintain what Jesus died to give us is to strain at gnats and swallow camels. Hear the words once again from the Apostle Paul. He wrote these words from death row to his protege Timothy as his life was coming to a close. He said, and that from a child. Thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. That is to show you what's right. For reproof, that's to show you what's not right. For correction, that's to show you how Jesus came along and made it right. For instruction in righteousness, that is to show you how he keeps it right. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. In Jesus' name. Father, I thank you so much. I thank you so much as this message finds its way into the hearts of the listeners. I thank you, Father, that the truths and the graces found in this word are like a paint stripper, stripping away the old varnish, the old coats of paint, that religion put on us over the years. It's not about the exterior. It's about the interior. It's the heart that you look upon. And I thank you, Father, that the Holy Spirit has poured upon us the spirit of life and the spirit of Christ. And in him we have all sufficiency. I thank you, Father, that you've burned the bridge that I've walked across. There is nothing to go back to. Isn't that what the disciples said? They said, where would we go? You have the words of life. And so I thank you for these words of life, Daddy, as they just penetrate the hearts of people and that they walk away with a freshness. They walk away with a newness. They walk away with the reality that I have been made perfect, truly furnished. In Jesus' name, amen.